Hello and welcome to Arid Podcast. Arid is a raw, unscripted podcast offering conversations between an artist and a philosopher. In this podcast, you can expect us to uproot, unpick, and redefine contemporary modes of thinking within the South African context. In each episode, we will do so by making eclectic use of various cultural text and theoretical disciplines. I'm Nicolene Berger. And I'm Jana Vosloer. And this is Eret. Today we are joined here with someone very special. I call him Butius and he refers to me as Sisyphus sometimes um, <laughs> with our little philosophical <laughs> puns um, because we are indeed siblings. And um, so today we are joined with my brother Ru Vosloer. He is doing his master's degree in English studies at the moment and he is also a writer creatively and copywriting more in terms of his side hustles and beyond that he's just an exceptional brother so that is um, I'm very excited to be having this conversation with both Nicolene and I to welcome Ruth today. Yeah and I just want to say we've said in the in the beginning of Eret in the first episode that um, Jana and I struck gold with each other and we can have hours and hours of conversation and normally when you meet the siblings of your friends you don't think that you're gonna also get someone that you can kind of have the same conversations with but when I met Ruth for the first time in Harold in Salambosh where Jana and I live together um, we could sit down and I just remembered also talking for hours and hours so it was really nice to also connect in that way and and Rune and I've also had some cool conversations in the past in Stellenbosch so very excited to talk to you today yeah so welcome thank Rune. you I'm also I'm also very excited thank you for that great welcoming um and yeah I've also enjoyed our conversations in the, in the past and that's what makes me uh, particularly excited for today um, to see what what comes out. This is the first episode we're recording together, so if there's like side comments or things like that, or our interactions are a little bit different for those listening, it's because we're in the same room. Yeah. <laughs> we're not communicating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's amazing. Yeah, it's fun. Um, and and just to say, this is also the first time that I am on a podcast. So. Oh wow. Um, that's today episode. Yeah, and, and that's this, another thing. Not the last episode, but this is the last episode of our first season. So a lot of things happening here right now. But um, <laughs> synchronicity, <laughs> interconnectedness. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah. So just to introduce the topic that we will be discussing is not sibling rivalry, but actually we will be talking about how we can think of the connection between home, nostalgia, and the environment together. And this theme is also where Ru has his expertise as his master's topic. So um, Ru, maybe you can start off this conversation by just telling us a little bit how you understand these three concepts and how they kind of go together. Yeah, so I mean, uh, first of all, the concept of home, I think, is central to any person's life. And especially now in the time of COVID, it's made us sort of rethink how we conceptualize uh, where we live, where we where we are um, on a on a sort of a domestic scale, but also on a planetary scale. 
and how I think that links to nostalgia, especially in some of the films I've watched, is that uh, the notion of the childhood home is often the object of nostalgia. Mm -hmm. And um, I think sometimes it's difficult to recreate that nostalgia for yourself uh, in your own house or to sort of uh, achieve, achieve the feeling of being at home, having solace at home. And in a way that also connects to the environment and how we are currently treating the environment treating our home the planet and i think that's what what makes it a significant question and a significant topic to speak about mm. um so yeah absolutely i think a way that i link to the topic that we're discussing today that i because it's very satisfying for me to have this conversation because i've been thinking about these things in my art for a while and it all started when i went to korea and i kind of made the decision very quickly to move there for a year and then I got there and I immediately started feeling this kind of homesickness which was so overwhelming and intense and of course because my art is a reflection of what I go through that is where it went and I I kind of had this question of what it is that I'm going to bring home and I was just reflecting to Yana um, about that when I then came home afterwards I had changed so much and that was kind of that gap here was kind of that initiation for me into adult life and then I had to move into a different home so it was longing for something stable and home not being home and then coming home and discovering that now that home that childhood home is not my home anymore and it's it got me thinking a lot on where does home reside is it something that's in the body is it something outside is it our body connecting to us to nature and to the planet and it, it's supposed to feel I'm supposed to experience home as this kind of interconnectedness between the body and the planet. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I'm thinking about the topic today as well. Yeah, that's fascinating because of, I think home is a very emotional thing for all of us. And something interesting that I found out recently is, is the origin of the word emotion actually comes from the, the, the word to move. So emotions are literally what, what moves us and and i think in this sense nostalgia has become a very emotional response to sort of figuring out where we belong you know as 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 you also say we can see the body as our home we can see home as other people so i think where i'd like to take the conversation now is to sort of speak about where does our where our notions of home become destructive in a sense. Yo, that is such a good way to phrase a question and to turn it around. And just before we move on to that, I'm that that what you said about I just want to pause on that idea of moving. I mean, for me, that now just clicked in as my whole understanding of home in the last few months was really about moving constantly, moving actually <laughs> because it was yeah. a lot of a displaced year for me personally, where we were traveling and then coming and didn't really have a home and then we had to constantly move and how almost uh, uh, when I think of home in a way at the moment I'm thinking of the process of finding home mm. or of, of moving yeah. to a home mm. is almost like the new home <laughs> at the moment for me because every home is so temporary and I guess that's something that a lot of people in our or not just in our age bracket but in this time where you are like in between homes and and constantly moving you can relate to it on a very literal level but then also 
more, like you say, emotionally, what does it mean to constantly move and to be at home? So that makes me curious about how you understand that idea then as a, as a destructive force, maybe. How, how do you, yeah. do you want, if you say to move the conversation there, what, where does that question come from? So basically, um, as you spoke earlier about the, the notion of homesickness, how I basically came to make these connections was I played a video game called Homesick. Mm. And it takes you through this sort of desolated environment. And it's just a visually stunning experience, but it's also at the same time so very grim. And something in that game just made me question, isn't there something lacking in our, in our sense of being at home? Uh, perhaps a certain feeling of solace that we lack an uneasiness. And I think in our culture today where we consume a lot and sort of uh, in, in our stationary states, we, we do consume a lot and we, we really do uh, abuse the resources that we have. I think uh, a big part of being at home has come to be associated with, with consumption, with, with using resources. And I think this is where the destructive nature comes in to the point where you are destroying an environment, say the planet, which you are calling your home from your house, Yeah, which is also, so you're basically, you're mismatching what is important to you in terms of finding solace. Mm. And I think that's a, that's become a very big problem in, in the, the Anthropocene and the time of climate change and, so I think if we can understand how our relationship with home became so convoluted, we might be able to do a better job at maintaining the climate and mm. sort of just just inhabiting the earth. Yeah, it is this, it's this weird thing that I also said to Yana, which links to the cultural text we're going to discuss today, where there's this differentiation between like a house and a home and how these strange places that we live in now at the moment that have kind of popped up on our first home is now our homes. And like Jana said now while you were speaking, it's a destruction of our home from this secondary homes that we've we've kind of started believing is necessary. And, and that kind of separation from nature um, and being in connection to nature and with nature, like all the other animals using nature as their first home is a very interesting point for me. Like, I wonder what happened there and why are we so far removed from understanding the earth as our first home? Yeah, I think that's, that's a fascinating point you make. And I think it, it has to do a lot with the assumption that we are just by definition sedentary life forms sort of we we've settled at some point uh stopped being nomadic and we've chosen that this is now the best way to live where we haven't really investigated other options of living that might be more nomadic um and i think it's interesting to think at the end of the day once people have everything they want all they want to do is travel all they want to do is yeah. go away so i think that's a, a great thing a great thing we can talk about to sort of to sort of explain this phenomenon of destruction that comes from home um, because it seems to be a place we all want to escape even in its ideal state yeah and, and yeah and if we don't want to escape it we want to change it <laughs> yeah and yeah. and yeah improve it so mm -hmm. it's also this this idea even if you think about 
the very linear way we are expected literally to develop in terms of where we reside. Okay, obviously you start in the womb and then um, you go. <laughs> and so that's like a very environmental home, I guess, to begin in. But then if you have like almost your family house, and obviously now I'm talking in a very middle-class context because we also have to consider homelessness as as a different phenomena but if you think about how you almost go from or in my life at least home family home and then all of a sudden you go to this like dorm room if in university like a smaller home and then an apartment home and then hopefully you'll go back to the house home and then You're maybe society asks you to be a home for this new yeah. child and how there's almost this idea of a the I'm thinking a lot about this progress of the bigger and better home. And even in any home that you are, there's this constant push for improvement. And uh, you see it literally in DIY type of projects, but you yes, see, yes. figure it or on a more symbolic level, there's something to be said of this moving. And even if you think about this tendency for people to go, the whole tiny house movement, I was watching that on Netflix the other day, and how people have this very much from the minimalist to if you want to counter this consumer trends where that is kind of objects have have replaced the sense of home um, or the the emptiness of home but then how there's this trend to either like you say abandon home live more simply travel or to radically then on the other side of the spectrum the whole mansion opulence idealities uh, that we strive towards um so yeah that is interesting. yeah i think that's an extremely good good response and um i'm i hope we get to talk about this later when we get to the to the text but um the way you explain home sort of as growing up in the in the home of the parents and then moving out and then reconstructing home it's almost like you're describing a cyclical process mm -hmm. that goes on and on and it's almost like when will we learn to escape the cycle of of consumption in a way almost and when will we start to uh, globally recognize what these spaces are doing to us um, what it means to inhabit these spaces and in a sense it also then connects to concepts such as gender because if you want to be embodied you need to embody something you know you need to feel at home in your own body to sort of uh, to have an identity I guess so the concept of home is also so strictly linked to identity to the point where it's almost the most political thing we have. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I'm, yeah, if I'm making sense it now. It makes a lot of it, sense, especially like in terms of South Africa, if you look at how our homes are structured in the kind of neighborhoods and the way that the cities are laid out, our homes reflect the politics of the space. You know, like the fact that there is big mansions in certain areas of the city and people that have barely all of the things they need in the house like running water and electricity so close by and in other part of the city reflect through our home states this the politics of the space definitely and then also the kind of body politics of even when if you think of your your body as your home in a way as well but mm -hmm. how that home is policed or that home is, um, if you talk about home as destruction, how certain bodies are not recognized, mm -hmm. or that all that uh, that's how I read into what you say when that home is almost is a or the body home, if we can call it like that. 
is, yeah. is political. And it's funny how I, I didn't even think I thought of environment as home and I thought of literal homes at, at, as homes, but until you pointed it out, I didn't think of my body as a home. Mm. So yeah. thank you for yeah. bringing that point home. <laughs> 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 my friends. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think it's so fascinating. Also, it's very frustrating to think, uh, for example, that there are more open houses in the world that there, than there are homeless people. Yeah. And so we also get to, to distribution and sort of questioning our condition. I mean, what is it that makes us unable to have a just housing distribution? Mm. And yeah, I was going to get to something else now as well, which is sort of when we talk about, about this condition, I mean, we have to ask what is nature? What, what does nature really mean to us? Because we say we're going into nature or animals might inhabit nature more than we do. But I mean, if, if we don't question what nature actually is, I think it's very difficult to make any kind of standpoint about it because some argue that nature is literally also the, the concrete buildings that we have, the glass windows, cell phones are, are just as much natural as grass or plants. They're just, they've just been rearranged. So yeah, it's, I think it's, it's definitely important to think about nature in that way and to think what is our nature, what kind of nature are we part of? Yeah, and if also if you think about how people talk about human nature, the nature of our being, how we act, and in, like you say, a more complex understanding of nature and in terms of philosophy, I'm thinking now of like the naturalistic fallacy where, yeah, there's this whole, this whole binary that we've created between what is natural or chemical and how it's actually way more, we find chemical substances in nature and natural substances in chemicals and vice versa and all of that but I want to um, ask you to to return a little bit to the if you think about nostalgia again now and the homesickness and this nature and environment just before we go into the cultural text you also mentioned to me that in your project you talk about solace nostalgia so uh, another form of nostalgia and maybe while we are airing things out maybe you can just explain that a little bit to us because i'm very interested to hear how that would link into this conversation yeah yeah sure and i also think nostalgia it's a it's a perfect time now to talk about nostalgia uh, in the sense that we've just talked about talked about a sort of a consumeristic behaviors around the home and um what got me into researching nostalgia uh basically was was how it it was being used in advertising and how uh markets have started to play on people's nostalgia to make them think they need certain products to be at home. And that was the crux of, of my sort of first argument around, around this issue. And so uh, nostalgia, I think, plays a very important role for us uh, when we consider, um, consider being at home because our house is also filled with all these artifacts, all these things that we long for but may never really attain. And I think that lack of attainment also reflects the sort of lack of solace, which I was speaking about. And this is why I think solastalgia is such an interesting concept because it's, it's not like nostalgia. It's, it's different in the sense that your home environment is currently being destroyed while you are there. That is what the solastalgic person experiences. And so on a planetary scale, I mean, 
our home is literally being destroyed um, almost to an extent where we can't really get it back. You know, we, we cannot get this thing that we are longing for, but at the same time, it's sort of vanishing in front of us. And I think this is, this is why so many people are unable to attain solace in these times, especially with, with the COVID pandemic, um, because we're, we're forced to now face our homes for the first time. And we're forced to face our solastalgia and to admit that human beings are experiencing this. I wouldn't say a medical condition, but it definitely has physical ramifications um, in terms of stress and in terms of anxiety. And so, yeah, solastalgia is very interesting because it was first observed sort of in the Navajo peoples of, of North America. And basically, these people, similar to, to some of the polity in Australia, started uh, developing practices that almost reflected a sense of knowing the planet. Um, for example, in, in Australia, they started burying coal reserves and something in their sort of spirituality or, or something in their sense of, of being at home in the world just made them feel like they shouldn't be using these resources. And so I think that's very interesting in terms of, in terms of solastalgia, how they how they needed to bury coal to, to attain solace, um, to feel at peace where they were living. And I mean, they weren't necessarily living in, in houses or structures at all. Some of these cultures, um, it's reported that they simply gather around the fire and that is their home. So I think that's why solastalgia is particularly interesting because it's a, a sort of a, a new description for an emotion that is so ancient mm. and so embedded into us. And I think it's high time that we start addressing, addressing that emotion because it, as I said, emotions move us and solastalgia, according to the theorist uh, Glenn Albrecht that I'm working with, can often lead to a concept called solophilia, which is then again a love of your home environment, a willingness to repair it and, and a willingness to face the destruction to, to go from solastalgia to solophilia and ultimately to attain solace in relation to to where you are living and and the body that you are that you are in wow that's that is just so profound i really love those two words like i'm gonna go read more and more and more about that because i think uh, in a way acknowledging like you say emotions difficult emotions so that they can move you into action is something that I'm also very interested in my work at the moment. So thinking about the one being kind of a condition that's very crushing and hard, but that it can actually inspire another kind of love for um, this feeling of solace, this feeling of being at home. It's very beautiful actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like you can say in a profound way, it's, it's a kind of liberating idea to think that if we confront solastalgia, there's an opportunity for solophilia and um, how that could be uh, something that can be mobilized for us in order to deal with our current state. And um, I almost want to say the practical next steps of what we can do in terms of environmental problems, um, but also on a, deeper emotional level in terms of feeling at home which yeah. makes sense because they're not separate yeah the home of the body and the home of the earth yeah. and all of that it's not separate so addressing something internally is also addressing the state of nature and that is that whole thing about 
the internal and the external and even how we talk about home and the environment we also committed a little bit of abstraction in our topic for today because we immediately separated them as two different topics that we try to connect but um yeah as long as we think about the environment also as in separate of home um maybe we are you know that's part of how we through language i guess contribute mm. um to some of those problems and just one more thing before we go into the cultural texts i want to ask you Ru, how do you see practical manifestations of solastalgia today like what does solastalgia look like for you especially now in this time of covid yeah so interestingly um it's difficult to find an exact example of what it looks like and i guess that is the re- research that i'm busy conducting at the moment is to try and find out what does it look like how does it manifest and and that is also why i turned towards film because i think it's a great medium um to depict emotions to depict effects um and so on and so uh, the best i can do for now is to explain sort of what has happened to people and uh, normally these are situations where where their homes are literally under attack so th- someone would be building a new road somewhere to open a shopping center and and they would destroy a community in in the process and these people all reported having similar feelings um even to the point of say sensitivity to light um or sensitivity to sound so in a sense i mean the theorist i work with doesn't think there's a, a physical sort of symptomatic expression of it and and neither do i but yet people have reported um feeling very similar things when when they're undergoing uh basically environmental distillation or the desolation of of their homes and it's the same with with wildfires it's the same with toxic waste around rivers and so i think it's going to be interesting to see how solastalgia manifests now in the time of covid um and i think if we were to go and analyze people's say posts on social media or their reports of their feelings i think it would be very interesting to see how how they are experiencing this emotion and if they are experiencing this emotion which which i think they definitely do uh, so yeah if that answers your question yeah i think and it's nice that you say how film is also a medium for you because then that segues nicely into um the next part and i think and one thing maybe the trick to that feeling is there must be something of all these sourdough breads being made like <laughs> <laughs> the sourdough and the diy and all of those things i remember you saying once that that's also a manifestation of this type of the home is being destroyed or your our environment is obscured and now there's this once again classic human willing or need to control something in in this home and to regulate that space in an achievable way i suppose it's avoidance uh, of nostalgia yeah. in like fixing the the physical home that you're in now as a as an avoidance of dealing with confronting the the, yeah, the natural home being yeah. destroyed and it's interesting how how we keep returning to this idea of escape as well uh, in the sense of escaping also the anthropocene escaping this destructive era where where we control the weather where we control how much matter is moved around on the planet more than any other species or factor or force and so just one more point on albrecht before we 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 finish this up is 
is how he advises us to move from the Anthropocene to what he calls the Symbiocene, which is an, an age of living together. And basically it's, yeah, I think it will be interesting to see in the text how, how this movement uh, comes to life yeah. and perhaps to try and find out if we can see some solastalgic behavior in the characters themselves. So the cultural text that we are looking at today is the film Mother by Darren Aronofsky, is the director. Um, it was released in 2017. And I watched the film last night only. Nicolene watched it earlier the week. I also watched it. No, I watched it yesterday. Oh, yesterday. Yeah. Okay, we both watched it yesterday. And we both had very interesting viewing experiences that I definitely think we should reflect on. Like, <laughs> just to, we haven't really debriefed after watching this film. So I'm happy that we're doing this on this podcast for if you just watch the film um, or if you are going to watch the film, I mean, it is quite intense. I wouldn't say it's just like a low-key, easy-watching film. Um, <laughs> Rue, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you watch this film, I, I bet for the, for the majority of, of your experience, you will be, be asking what the fuck, you know, like what is, what is going on? And it's, yeah, it's very intense to watch. And it was also very strategically, like even when this was released on Buck, box office they didn't do previews and i think it it, this is like not the rotten tomato high school type of film because the audience was kind of just shook up and they thought because there's a very like all-star cast like javier bardem and jennifer um lawrence lawrence and um what's her name michelle pfeiffer like all the celebrities but yeah, it's it's a very unsettling and uneasy. You don't really feel at home when you are watching yeah. this film. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Aronofsky actually did comment on this, um, and he and he says that was a deliberate a deliberate yeah. action by him casting sort of these these actors you wouldn't really see in these kinds of films. I mean, even Kirsten Wig, as the publisher, mm, she's yeah. an actress that comes from Saturday Night Live. It's it's interesting, almost comedic how he how he did the casting and how he. Yeah. Very clever because yeah. he, he obviously trapped people um, thinking that they're going to watch this like, like what do you say, blockbuster, this yeah. like very easy movie to watch and then also not doing previews. I think it's sneaky to kind of trap people into this experience. But now that we're reflecting about viewing it, I just want to say to the listeners, if you are someone with the gentler palate, maybe like watch half of the movie and do what I did. I minimized my screen to like the smallest size. <laughs> my volume on like one, I don't know what you call it, one thing of volume. And, uh, and I watched the second half like that and with the computer like two meters away from me. <laughs> I hate the jump scare and I didn't know if there was going to be any and I don't know the the entire movie the the way it's filmed it really sets you up for this uneasy feeling and and I think um, in terms of cinematography and how it was filmed it's very nauseating because the camera is constantly behind or like looking out at the world like Jennifer Lawrence would and moving with her and then the the house is also in a spiral so she keeps running up and down so it's just the spinning spinning feeling and which really really adds to that unnerving um, aspect almost like this this, a a solastalgic feeling perhaps (laughs) yes Um, (laughs) 
but I, I just quickly wanted to also get back to another fascinating point Jana made just before we segued into this, um, which is about sort of the inside and the outside um, home as inside of you or, or an exterior force, because that is also a central part of my thesis. I deal with the inside and the outside spatial dynamics. Um, and essentially what I've realized is that these are actually just borders. That is what, that is what a, a point is where the inside and outside becomes convoluted. And in this way, we can think of many things as borders. I mean, it can be a physical part of the house um, that is boarded up, for example, uh, which happens at some point in the movie. It can be a physical human body or it can be something we don't expect, like a, a chimney or a tap which allows for resources to go through and pass by. Um, we can also think of sort of like pipes in the wall. These are, are uh, connections that blur what is between inside and outside. And often without us realizing them, they, they influence our lives and, and especially influence our consumption. Mm. And that's also like when you spoke about nature as concrete and all of that, even if you think about, you know, there's technically rivers in our house through the taps you know <laughs> like yeah yeah exactly um, well not river i don't know somehow the ocean comes to us through various processes and the rivers and and yeah like this inside i like this idea of even sewage and all of those inside outside blurs um, and i think in the film mother there's also you see a lot of that um especially with the outside environment and um, I don't think we'll do a synopsis or anything that, uh, or in too much. We'll talk about the film. Um, but what I do want to say is for our topic today, I mean, this film is loaded with symbolism and there's a very explicit in your face. Well, it's not that in your face, but once you click it, then it's quite obvious. It's like the whole um, Genesis creation story. Um, yes, yes. Basically, you find the whole Old Testament, the character of the God creator, then then Jennifer Lawrence has a baby and it's the New Testament side and you see the kind of decline or Christianity and war and all of these aspects. And we honestly didn't, I don't think from Nicolina, like our side, maybe Rue have read a lot about more about this, but from that angle of the film, that, that sub-theme, we didn't do as much research and we were kind of more interested to think more about the home environment link because that's another and obviously that it's connected to the more um i want to say theological reading of the film but i thought just to flag for our listeners that we are not going to do a like step-by-step -step film analysis where we focus um on all of that on all of it yeah. but um i think this film was for me at least it was particularly interesting the film is called mother you can think about mother earth um and then it's it's all within this one home um so yeah just to maybe frame the conversation so that we talk about it that that's kind of the point of departure for this episode is the environmental home connection so what I want to know, Rue, in terms of the airing it part, um, maybe you can just tell us why this was the cultural text that you suggested and, um, and yeah, what was your thinking around it? Maybe if you want to go into fleshing out some of the, the references to the Bible, you can do so. Otherwise, just tell us in terms of the topic that we chose for the day, how did you read this film and what was your initial thoughts and also viewing experience? Yeah, so I think anyone who's sort of had a bit of an academic background 
will immediately realize the biblical themes, the themes of gender and, and the environmental themes. So I haven't looked at the biblical themes that much. Um, they do play a part in, in my thesis and, and, and they, they are significant, but yeah, I, I, I think it would be best to focus solely on the environmental aspects for today, which is, yeah, I mean, you asked me how, how this sort of came to me and basically Jana <laughs> told me about this film because I was doing my honors also on Solastalgia and uh, one day I think we were just drinking and, and we were talking about this at some bar and I don't know if, if you were also there Nicolene. Um, I remember maybe potentially. Maybe, maybe yeah. Um, but yeah we, we sort of talked about about Solastalgia and stuff and then one night Jana just messaged me and, and I was kind of struggling at that time to find a topic for my thesis and sort everything out there and um, she told me to watch this movie and so I, I did. And it was actually Martin, my partner, who he watched. The, he actually begged me to watch the movie with him. And I was like, ah, oh, I'm busy, whatever. And then he watched the movie and then he told me about it. And then I was like, oh, this sounds a little bit like what Rue is doing, is trying to do. So it's so now maybe we should so credit cool Martin <laughs> for this. If you listen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But so, so that's how it happened. And I mean, by the ending of the film, my mouth was just hanging open and I, I felt like this is, this is exactly what, this is exactly the depiction that I wanted to see um, to sort of further my studies. And so, yeah, I think if we can have one note on the religion aspect, there's actually a poem that is written for the movie, which is like, it's almost like a addition to it, um, like a supplement in essence. And I think that's the best connection between religion and nature that we see in the concept of mother. So I'm going to read it to you. And so it's called Mother's Prayer. And what it says is, Our mother who art underfoot, hallowed be thy names. The seasons came, thy will be done within us and around us. Thank you for our daily bread, our water, our air, and the lives, and so much beauty. Lead us not into selfish craving and the destructions that are the hungers of the glutton, but deliver us from wanton consumption of thy vast but infinite bounty. For thine is the only sphere of life we know, and the power and the glory forever and ever amen so i mean it's amen. interesting how, how it's interesting how they take this this religious statement that we are we are all quite familiar with and turns it into this prayer for nature so beautiful where where they're speaking about the air the water about you know not leading us into temptation but not leading us into into selfish craving and destruction i mean just saying it that blatantly is what really brings it home for me. Um, and I think from there we can, we can move on to the environmental aspect completely. And I mean, when we watch the film, we can see that it's, it's an isolated environment. There's nothing beyond the house and its garden. Everything else is desolate. So I think that's a good point to start with sort of why this desolation at the beginning of the film um, yeah, why do we see this at the start, sort of? Mm. 
I can't remember now, is it, the, does the scene open with the house already destructed or does it open with the house in its full, um, like, it restoration? It the ending, basically, like that part where you see the burnt face. Oh, yeah. Isn't that the first yeah. thing? Yeah, so the, the first thing you see is, is mother's sort of burning face. So and abruptly from the beginning, there is this sense of destruction. But I think we are sort of... Uh, we forget that because immediately after that we are taken into this beautiful environment like this home that much of us would have liked to live in um yeah. this paradise yeah. yeah that can we just give a special shout out to that home like, it's beautiful <laughs> it's so <Yeah>. beautiful. <laughs> it's part of what makes you throughout this movie the uneasiness is how quickly like you say we attach ourselves to this home the the one thing that i also reflect on and i think it's that is what was intended it's not like a unique experience is that the whole filming experience i felt in my body as if the pain towards the home was directed at me like mm -hmm. i i felt you know when you feel hurt and you like cringe your body just moves a bit of, like that and yeah. that sensitivity that feeling where why do we relate to this home so much mm. um and uh, yeah and i mean aesthetic. that is that is the core question i mean is uh and i think this is what we also talked about earlier we are harming the earth our home from our physical home so it's like why do we feel this damaged out like where's it coming from mm. and i think that's because a lot of this damage is simply invisible it's hidden in the walls it's hidden behind the scenes and I mean, it's, it's interesting how people have dressed up the environmental movement, this green wave. Um, but when we face the facts, we haven't really done anything serious to solve the problem. Yeah. And I think it's because we're isolating ourselves in these spaces, because I was also reflecting to Johanna, like if we were still living in nature as in our first home, we wouldn't be able to avoid the destruction, but we are able to avoid the destruction by being in these spaces that kind of, take us out of it you know it's like almost like these paradises in the sense of that home as well where it's like it within this space um mother also says she wants to create a paradise she wants to create in this space the perfect space and the whole interaction and how she tends to the house sets you up for loving it in such a way because everything is done so sensitively and it's raw you know like even when she paints the walls she mixes the pigments and the the plaster herself so there's this element of rawness of elemental almost expression which is really beautiful even all the like the interior design is literally like what we would call earthy tones mm. um which is yeah. so funny for me like even like the linen and everything and it's funny that we even have that framework like what is earth tone like what does that even mean but yeah in clothing but i was thinking like more in terms of in the discipline of philosophy uh, the concept when you think about environmentalism also is that it's a type of slow violence how when and it's especially when you think about the destruction of the environment how when violence happens so slow like if you think about a glacier melting it's not the same type of injury or harm than when you see a person being like shot dead in front of your eyes or something like that and that says something about our struggle with with dealing with the gravity of slow violence and i think yeah. that's something where the the because we relate so much with the home and how when the, the home starts being kind of systematically 
progresses to fall apart even more and people are harming it even more and that pain we feel is something because the movie makes it immediate to us whereas like you say we aestheticize this the violence the environmental violence and thereby we abstract ourselves from it yeah yeah exactly and i think these ideas can be carried are carried through straight from the enlightenment thinking and instrumental reason and mm-hmm. i think i think those are the ways in which we've come to see ourselves as a dominant force over nature we don't have to worry about the snakes or the cheetahs or anything but then we forget we are part of nature we are nature so the monster is sleeping next to you in the bed mm-hmm. that's what mother really that's what fascinates me about the film is it manages to show to show that to us that our domination over nature is a lie mm. um sort of because we do not have the s- same control over ourselves mm. yeah. and, and and neither should we so yeah i want to ask you to unpack that term instrumental thinking okay so so i'm just going to take it back a bit so in the environmentalist movement mm-hmm. a lot of things have happened and basically the divide between nature and culture is one of the biggest biggest sort of issues around environmentalism and that division sort of created the sense that we are different from nature we are apart from it and we are here to control it to bend it to our will and basically the official discourse at the time which you would find in the natural sciences or in in psychology all followed upon that principle which which actually also can be said to to have led to a sort of colonial era um, of exploitation over over other humans because now you can classify people in terms of anything you can say those people are animals those people are just tools or, or those are people that really matter to us so uh, in terms of instrumental reason it is how we've come to instrumentalize uh, nature and to use it as a tool but unfortunately along with that came a sense of domination over nature which was so misguided that we now have to face the fact that our entire planet is under threat. I'll quickly add to what Ru just said about instrumental reason. So along, just to add alongside what he, how, the way he explained it was exactly how it is, but also how we physically see that what we call the enlightenment period in, in, in the period of, you know, after the industrial <coughs> revolution and kind of the invention of science uh, or modern day science and how all of that started featuring together with the notions of progress and like he said at the the cost of exploitation and a, a part of how that enlightenment thinking and like the philosophers at that time in the critical um more like the social critical theory they they referred to the dialectic of enlightenment um and how these type of how instrumental reason uh, drives enlightenment thinking and how it is based on one of the core aspects of that is how we abstract um, nature from ourselves and our control domination over the nature and each and each other and we see that in something like ecofeminism as a a, a radical approach to start understanding for instance how the domination of the environment and the domination of women coexist and now it's the same mechanism that um, maintains it and it's not just women and I mean it can be more intersectional than that mm-hmm. but even it's interesting when you think about the type of terminology that we use to ex- ex- 
to refer to nature and the type of terminology like mother nature um mm. i heard in the youtube video also like fertile grass like the, the way we speak about the soil as fertile or how we <coughs> so the type of language we use and the power we use when we talk about nature is also yeah. then very much a byproduct of this enlightenment um and instrumental reason so instrumental also sorry i'm talking so long now but instrumental is also to use something not as an end in itself but as an instrument to another means to your mm. own personal means mm. and an opposite of that would be if you, uh, an example would be intrinsic value so if something is not just an instrument for your own power and domination but if you think about ourselves as nature and ourselves as the environment and not just you know humans as separate then it, you can start seeing the intrinsic connections between healing um, the earth healing us healing everything yeah, understanding nature and the self and everything yes yeah. exactly and I, and i think we also see that in the film um uh, and one word I also wanted to mention alongside this is the term petrocultures, um, which is a very interesting little sub-discipline of environmental studies, um, or even a discipline on its own, which, which is actually in, in undergrad how I came to this way of looking at home as a place of resource cons consumption, as a place of destructiveness, as a place of hidden vice. Um, because... Basically, uh, our lecturer prompted us to think about one thing in our house that didn't require oil. And it's so difficult because everything we use in these places and the places themselves are so much, or so much of it, it is constructed around oil and oil consumption. And oil is obviously not a very sustainable resource. Um, and it has so many negative environmental effects. And so I think petrocultures is a great word to describe it all um, because it shows how it's not just these big factories. It's not just the supply. It's also the, the demand that is creating the crisis. You know, we are the ones that request to have these products. And if we simply didn't want them, then they wouldn't be made. Um, so I think that's an interesting part where humans can sort of attain a bit of power over big industry um, and to sort of just, just think more about the everyday person and their, their footprint and yeah. what are they sort of doing for the environment. Yeah, an, an interesting documentary I watched when I was in Korea was called The Century of the Self and I think it is available on YouTube and I think in the first installment is where they introduced the idea that um, up until quite recently, I can't remember the exact date now, people didn't buy items because they thought it reflected a part of their identity. They bought it for their purpose. So you would wear a pair of tackies until you can't wear them anymore and then you'd throw them away or you'd give them away and you buy a new one. You don't need a pair of tackies that is so you. And this idea that our objects in the world um, and in our houses reflect a part of our identity is really centered around this creation and blowing up of the self and mm. um, as at the center of our life and, and having to give expression so that people can relate to it and see who. And I thought that was also very interesting that we surround ourselves with all these items we think we need um, that is literally um, being created by an advertising mm. industry. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Almost as if there were some exteriorized self Exactly. That, that we all yeah. had. And, and I mean, this great theorist called MC Rodman, 
I can't remember her first name, um, but uh, the initials are just MC. And, and she says the home has almost become a space um, to represent for us what is tangibly unrepresentable. Mm. Um, so it's interesting how the notion of home is tied to, to the notion of self because uh, so, many, so many of us use our homes, use material objects to construct our sense of identity. And I mean, when you really th think about it, then how can you achieve solace? How will you ever find peace if you yourself are an outsider to your, to your own being? If, 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 if you yourself, if yourself is just a series of products, plastics, or, and so on. Um, so I think that's where it becomes, it becomes interesting. Um, as and some people tend to, tend to turn to nostalgia, which mm -hmm. makes it even more materialistic. Um, and then others, uh, sort of, I, I think Jennifer Lawrence character in the film makes a turn and rather experiences the solastalgia and experiences the, the gap, um, the thing that she doesn't have. And that is what ultimately leads her to, to make certain decisions, to fight against solastalgia, to keep on trying to clean up the home, keep telling people not to sit on the unbraced sink, for example. But what then becomes fascinating is how her effort at some point just isn't enough anymore. There are so many people in the house and they are destroying it to the extent where it can no longer be fixed. And isn't that the essence of the Anthropocene? Um, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, what you said about um, the objects and reflecting the objects, we feel this kind of violence that is done to the house also in the way that they come in and they destroy the objects in the house, but also consume, like every single person that comes into the space, consume something they come and take yeah. something they yeah. they cause damage in some way by wanting to consume if, whether it's just sleeping in the bed or eating some of the food that it was not meant for them and that kind of violence for me was very experienced in that way where it's just this closed space which we associate with private like there's a border around that space and not everyone is allowed and here is the, this one character the, the male character he, I think they just call he's, he's called he's called the poet, yeah. Yeah, the poet, the yeah. poet, where he he just allows all of these people into this house, mm. and there's supposed to be a boundary there. You're not supposed to come inside this space. So that mm. kind of open um, opening up of what is inside and outside was very disturbing to me, and mm. that is almost yeah. the unnerving part of it. Lies is that how can you just open this space up for so many people? Yeah, and and Aronofsky's magic is then basically making the house itself bleed showing that the house has a heart connecting the house to mother almost like they are one in the same yeah and Jana also said this earlier that idea that the character of mother and the house is the same thing and it also links to that kind of idea of embodiment of the home again of where is the home where does the home lie and is there a way to separate these different places as home or this kind of solace feeling where you can come home to something um, yeah. we, uh, we've kind of been chasing that like you say through consumerism this whole time uh, but it keeps being something that is external and having attachment outside of us where all of that's connected and even yeah, and the, 
the objects of um, where, where you spoke about everyone came to grab something, it was because they wanted something of the poets. They wanted to touch something that's close enough. It was a very much like something that the God has touched and then it will bless them as well. And so it was interesting how that was kind of, for me, the symbolic representation of consumer culture and exactly, exactly. linked to the ego of the self. And, and that was the only thing that could shape their identity if they just had an object of the poets. And um, yeah, it's interesting also then how um, the other thing I was thinking of with this is there isn't really any um, normally or like if I, I was looking now here in Nicolene's home where we are, there's a lot of plants. And I was thinking about the modern day tendency to get house plants, how that's kind of a very hip thing to do. So we've attached an object in this aestheticization of our home. I mean, yeah, just most of my friends and people our age like really attach a lot to having plants and we can question that on a symbolic level but i don't think there are any plants inside the home it's something that that came up to me in the interior decorating there's almost no there's no plants am i and even in the nature scene around it the house kind of has this circle around it that's kind of plain there isn't like a garden and then it's forest yeah. so it it, yeah. it yeah it doesn't it doesn't encourage that aestheticization of oh. nature in, in the, the space yeah that was just something interesting yeah, it's interesting how many of these house plants have be, have come to be made out of plastic itself. You know how people get those fake plants. Yeah, um, so interesting. It's a very interesting. I aesthetic. think something of that. Um, yeah, the almost the, the side effect or of not achieving uh, or trying to maybe achieve salophilia, but then once again abstracting um, and commodifying maybe. Yeah, um, yeah and the, with the commodification, it's it's interesting because this is something we see in many cultural texts or or, or just any philosophical or uh, sort of self-aware text. I, I'm thinking of Rick and Morty right now. Um, I think it's in the third season. I think it's the ninth episode actually, also where um, they have this advertising for this product called Simple Ricks, and they say, and it's this wafer. You know, it's just a wafer, and they say, come home to simple rigs, you know, come home to, to whatever. Um, and, and that is exactly how I feel that the consumeristic modus operandi is working at the moment, literally selling us products, foods, things, and calling it home, mm. you know, definitely showing the exterior na nature of our houses. You know, an empty house is, is not an house, a house for us. A house has to have coffee and tea and other shit, you know, So the, what was interesting to me was that the moment of enlightenment in the movie symbolism is when the poet um, finds out his wife is pregnant and then he gets this bright spark and he writes the poem, you know, his writer's block is unblocked. And then that's the moment of enlightenment. And then that's kind of where I minimized my screen from there on. Because after the moment of enlightenment, just to circle back to when we spoke about that, how it's represented in the movie as this 
rapid, 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 like destruction of the house. Like after he writes that poem, it's just people. And then all of a sudden there's a war scene and then there's people getting trafficked and then there's another war. And it's just like the slow violence done to the house is just completely accelerated. And it's just the one thing after the other. And it's just destroyed, you know, until it's burnt. And that was also yeah. interesting is how quickly after the enlightenment, things started accelerating and that also aligns with our kind of industrial eras and then the consumer culture and, and all of that. And also how we now have a ticking clock on the, our changes we can do to save the environment. Like it's 12 years or how many ever it's, it's probably going to accelerate still because we, we still haven't stopped, you know, like, yeah. Um, no, that was also just interesting visually how they, um, how he showed that in the movie. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's a reenactment of the biblical events. And then the poet writes that story, uh, feeding off human suffering. And then his fans come into the home and they reenact it again with his own child. And it happens again and again. And I think what that signals is that we are simply making the same mistakes over and over again. And I think that's why the film is cyclical as well, because I think Aronofsky knows even at the end of this film, when we had this revelation, we go back to square one because we still have this toxic relationship with consumerism um, and, and with unjust distribution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I was also thinking, Uri, when you said um, earlier that, you know, we can't be at home in an empty home, we need all these things. And then, um, so the thing that the poet also says is he, he has this craving for the people, he wants the people in a home, he says his creative process can't go because there's just nothing going on. Um, and the whole biblical allegory aside, it was interesting for me how then uh, Jennifer Lawrence character, um, in the, the whole first thing when she says when that smoker um basically adam comes is that it's a stranger we shouldn't allow the stranger in um and at first i was yeah i was thinking a lot about the thing of home and like you say borders and strangers and that's also like a more metaphor think about he, he was basically a refugee they didn't have a home to turn to and that welcoming of the stranger but at the same time they represent all these people that come are so toxic and um, quite literally and how at the same time there is something to be said about hospitality and the home and how the welcoming of others is what does provide solace to a large extent so there's that dual thing of like the the um, and that is something in the one philosopher that that I also like Richard Carney he talks about hospice or hostess the, the core word of hospitality such a classic philosophy to do to, to show the double meaning of how um, it is both to be hospitable and to be hostile uh, yeah. it's captured in the concept of hospitality so there's that exactly. thing of um, the risk of the stranger it can if you shake the hand it can either kill you or slap you or whatever or welcome you and they they keep on saying in the beginning thank you towards the him for his hospitality so i was also thinking about how can we i mean it the message isn't necessarily that the people shouldn't be in the house but it's to yeah. say how can what would it look like if the people were firstly good guests because it's like who is the host mm. and um and yeah how does hospitality then 
feature into this theme with can can the house remain with the with the humans in them that's i guess the yeah and, and almost like it's interesting uh sort of uh, in terms of the language how um hospitality can go to hostility can take you to the hospital yeah. <laughs> um basically and and they yeah. do end up at that point um and I think I think now it's the best time to talk about solace because I think that is at at the end point of it all that is what we want as humans. Um, we want to be able to live a life where we do not feel guilty about uh, eating, about sleeping, about sort of uh, consuming. But yeah, like a world with guilt-free consumption would be the ultimate form of solace. I think. Um, and as the phrase goes, solace is golden. Um, and this is also something I thought about with the film because uh, mother constantly drinks this little potion that she fixes. Every time she has a solastalgic episode and she's kind of shuts down and she becomes sensitive to light, she goes to the bathroom and drinks this tincture or, or elixir or whatever it is. Um, and I think that is sort of in the film that gives her like, momentary solace um but it doesn't solve the problem because she's still turning towards something exterior to um to gain solace sort of for herself internally um and i think that kind of mis mismatch is is a good analogy for what's going on on, on earth right now and for why many people are feeling so restless, anxious, solastalgic. Um, so if I can ask the two of you, how would you uh, suppose we can go about attaining solace uh, in our home environments? Mm. If you were to, to sort of... That is a very difficult question because I think it relates or, to... Or, or let me ask it like this. How do, how do you attain solace in your home in on a daily basis? When do you feel at home... Um, and when, when do you not feel at home? So strangely enough, it's when I am able to switch off my mind a little bit during meditation and practicing, because I think there's so many messages in the world of wanting and craving and desire, and you have to have this and you have to do that. There's all of these um, ways that we can achieve solace that we've kind of set up for ourselves, but it's all traps. It's, it's not real. It's about... Mm living embodied and trying to to be conscious and there is a different moment for me that sets in when I drop into my body and I then open my eyes and I look at my room or my house or wherever I'm sitting versus working an entire day trying to like get things done and getting into that loop of production. I think our problem at a bigger scale is that we are too obsessed with production and like you said it goes in hand with consuming and i suppose i mean consuming um, media like going on my phone often um really makes me feel unsettled so i've also started being stricter especially now that everything is virtual with boundaries around being on social media which is also a way of consuming content you know so to kind of cut the consumption and to just be with myself and really be in my body because often I feel like my, my consciousness hovers like a helium balloon above my body. And that is kind of like 
popping that balloon and bringing that down into this feeling this and that's also then when i feel the most connected to the earth it's through meditation that i feel connect my connection to the earth and that then makes because you can't just be conscious about some things you know consciousness i think is um, mindfulness is something that is um unsteaklik contagious contagious so i started thinking about eating and i was a vegan now i'm starting to not play with that term so much anymore because there's so many walls that go up when you label yourself as vegan but i was i became mindful about eating and then it kind of translated into mindfulness about everything you know it it yeah yeah so i think and there's definitely a big difference between mindfulness uh, turning inside um sort of not needing anything else you know that's that's fantastic isn't don't don't we watch mother and we feel the whole time why don't you just leave just go yes. um yeah. you know um because you don't need any of this yeah you yeah really don't you know and and i think that's the key to solace and I, and i love the way you explained your own experience now because it means i think solace in this age means not turning towards something exterior or something material um yeah. and it's so fascinating how deeply embedded the problem is because we live in an age where even mindfulness can be sold to you can exactly. be modified. it's not and that's exactly what it's i wanted a buzzword. to say and it's, yes. yeah, and you have to subscribe and pay and then you can be mindful and but obviously you can achieve it it cannot merely be commodified but it is commodified and it was interesting as nicolene spoke also I remember from meditation it's to be grounded yeah. and isn't that so interesting how you know you have to to it's a very also earthy term to to ground yourself and to be almost become one and definitely answer your question for me at first I was like do I experience solace at first you gave me a little bit of an existential go through I was like shit <laughs> 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 Just buy house plants, <laughs> and then because um, I do struggle, and it's uh, we've spoken about this also in that episode about design and power and education mm. and and productivity, and I I do struggle a lot with that feeling of tapping into our you know very much consumerist, high fast paced, and I mean I'm also one of those cliches that just found solace in traveling and leaving the home um, with just a backpack and not wearing the same clothes every day. And, and the, once again, it's in terms of only indulging experience, not having to write a to-do list every day and just having to be able to be a Rui. I think you once told me, I don't know, we were probably drinking again, but you, were, you just told me like, do you know that the world is our playground? And I was like, what? <laughs> and, and you, <laughs> Um, you just said like you know we can just play on this earth and we can do these things and so that's like a very cliche version I guess of that solace but then also that whole art of doing nothing thing and to just be able to sit and yeah like you say it really be is and finding you. yeah and but then the other thing that I want to say and I'm what I'm critical of is that solace cannot be merely in the self um, yeah. and that's a moment of solace then is maybe in conversations like these and this podcast because that is also where we can just be and we can find this but it's also understanding that 
in order for us to find solace, we have to move away from just thinking about the self. And that is, I guess, why I'm often critical mm. of a lot of self-help, self-care. Meditation yeah. is only a practice of the self. Is so yeah, in, in a sense, like the self-care we see on Instagram is the most poisonous thing you can do to yourself. Yeah, because um, what we need to do is we care and mm. environment. And, and yeah. uh, I think, yeah, so I think that's also something that I feel solace um in relation to others but when it's not only to get a task done for instrument but mm-hmm. the intrinsic value of being amongst others i guess yeah is to be at home for me yeah. yeah no i think even ontologically like if you were the only being in existence you would not be able to achieve solace yeah at all yeah, yeah. and and strangely yeah. enough the the kind of practices that i feel that in the most is one is metta meditation, which is loving kindness meditation. And it starts with identifying a person that you feel a very deep connection to. And you then meditate on these kind of messages of compassion that you tell them. And then you extend that to not just that person, but maybe your family. And then you extend that to your community. And then you extend that to Mother Earth. You say all of these mm. things like, I hope you're healthy. I, I wish you are healthy. I wish you are safe. I wish you are loved. You like say these things over and over to all of these people. And then you turn that back to yourself and you imagine the earth and the community saying it to you. And it's a yeah. meditation on compassion. And in the other in- that grounding one where you imagine your roots gr- grow into the earth and you are grounding mm-hmm. like a tree. And my other favorite one is where you imagine you're a river and you flow over kind of obstacles and things. So all of the meditations that I resonate with, with also has this either kind of community or this connection to the earth in it and that is where i find solace and yeah and i think that's a kind of meaning that you can't commodify um in a sense you know like these words that come out through meditation and and just sheer genuineness um i think is at the end the key to to attaining solace um because it, it it literally cannot be taken away from you and the, the book that Glenn Albrecht, uh, who, is, who is now the theorist on Solastalgia, has written is called Earth Emotions, New Words for a New World. And I love how he focuses on words because in a sense, he's also prescribing not as kind of like a meditation almost by using new words, by finding new ways to conceptualize things. And, and Solastalgia isn't the only um, Earth emotion. There, there are a couple others as well. Um, which are similarly interesting. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, he says there are two kinds of, there are terra, terra thwartic uh, kind of drives for emotions and there are terra nascent drives for emotion. And the one is destructive and the other one is sort of creative. And basically um, he recognizes that we'll never have only positive drives. We, we, will, we will have negative earth emotions but, um, and I mean, solastalgia is definitely a negative earth emotion, but it's coming to terms with those things, finding the vocabulary for it, internalizing it, and then making it part of our way of living that I think is ultimately what can give us solace from this, from this perspective. And it's interesting how the foam is actually based on, it's that whole thing of destruction and creation, and that's in the cyclical nature of it constantly replaying different modes of that um mm. but the i'm as you were saying that last part i was thinking i think we should read that poem again mm. uh, almost that now that we've 
had this conversation, I just almost feel like, like you say, with the playing of the words, um, I mean, maybe we can say some final notes and then end with reading that poem again, because I feel like after this conversation, it almost attains a new meaning mm. to me. Definitely, definitely. I, I also made some mistakes reading it the first time. So I'm going to try and fix them. But, but first, just if you have a like something more to add, um, I mean, we don't have to end the conversation. Um, As an ending remark, I would prompt people to think more about the way in which they inhabit their homes and to think about what home and homeliness means to them. Um, and also to think about what the lack of that would, would mean, sort of like homelessness. And also definitely I would recommend people to think about the earth also as our home, something that I think has something that I think can have a very big effect on how we end up treating the planet and how we end up exiting this era of the Anthropocene. And then finally to read up a bit more on Solastalgia, to read Albrecht's book, uh, New World Words for a New World. Uh, I think it's a very, very good book to read in our times mainly because it's not bleak it's it proposes some serious solutions and some serious uh, optimistic ways of thinking about the time we find ourselves in and yeah on that note i think i have said everything i have to say thank you so much Rue. and um yeah i i think in ending and and with that that idea of hopefully we can find solophilia yeah, just before you read the poem again, do you maybe just want to tell our listeners where they can find more about you and follow what you do, you. follow you on Instagram or something like that? Yeah, so I mean, I'm not very active on social media, but you can find me on Instagram at Rufosluer. And I'm also on LinkedIn. But yeah, so to wrap up, I think we just want to have another look at the poem again. And I really do think this highlights the core issues that we've dealt with in, in this podcast. And I think it really brings home the point of where we stand uh, with the environment, where we stand with our homes, and where we stand with ourselves in terms of uh, living in the future and, and living a life of solace and peace. Um, so I'm just going to read it again. Our mother who art underfoot, hallowed be thy names. The seasons come thy will be done within us and around us. Thank you for your daily bread, our water, our air, and our lives, and so much beauty. Lead us not into selfish craving and the destructiveness that are the hungers of the glutton, but deliver us from wanton consumption of the vast but infinite bounty. For thine is the only sphere of life we know, and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. 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 <laughs>